Let's pray. Father, we are a desperate people to think, to contemplate, to feel, to receive what you have for us in your holy word. And thus we are really desperate for the moving of your Holy Spirit. Not only upon me as a teacher, but upon all of us as hearers. Would you give us hearts that bow and see and love and appreciate and are affected by the glory of who you are in Jesus Christ and in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Two years ago, I began our series in the Gospel of Luke and we've made it into chapter 13. Starting today, I'm going to interrupt our series on Luke for three months in order to preach a series titled, The Person and the Work of the Holy Spirit. If we are to really be a people who gravitate toward the glory of God and love it, if we're to be a people who refuse to adulterate, the Word of God, who refuse to compromise the Scripture, if we're to be a people who want to reach out to lost and dying persons with the Gospel, then we are desperate for the constant infilling presence, holy baptizing experience of God, the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesians 5, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And in chapter 6 he goes on, Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. So first, why? Why a topical concentration for three months on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit? Why is that important? I have five reasons. Number one, We are in need every day to have a dynamic, a real, an active, intimate, personal relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are desperate for the ongoing infilling of the Holy Spirit. Reason number two, Hebrews 12.14 says that there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that holiness is particularly the work of the third person 
of the Holy Trinity. The Father and Son are fully in it, like is true with any work of the persons of the Trinity. But the Father did not die on a cross. The Holy Spirit did not become a human being. That was the work of the second person. And also our growth, sanctification, is uniquely the work of God, the Holy Spirit. The third reason, Romans 8.13 is a glorious reality and a sobering, terrifying sentence. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The fourth reason for this series on the Holy Spirit is that in the Scripture we are commanded to desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Not to desire to say, hey, look, I have a gift here. I'm gifted this way and another person isn't. That's called sin. Paul says you're worth nothing in 1 Corinthians if you totally misconstrue the gifts and the operations of the Holy Spirit. But we're commanded to desire the gifts for love's sake. The gifts that the Holy Spirit works and operates through sinful creatures who are in Christ in order to minister to another person or other persons in Christ through that one person. And the fifth reason. This is kind of going to be a little more wordy. The fifth reason for this series is because there are lots of people in the church world who are really confused about the Holy Spirit. Really confused about the gifts of the Spirit. Really confused about all kinds of things that preachers and persons and sects have said about how God the Holy Spirit operates in the church. On one side of the in-house debate, I use that term on purpose, within the church, real, genuine, born-again people on our way to heaven for Christ's sake. There's this division between, the, here's the big words, cessationism or continuationism concerning the operations and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, particularly laid out in 1 Corinthians 12-14 to and a few other places. Cessationism, that's the word cease, to stop, meaning those gifts, don't expect them, they have ceased essentially at the end of the first century. In continuation, say, I have no reason to think that they would have ceased biblically. I'm, I don't see that, so they, I believe they continue. Now, on the continuationist side, of which I am one, we have a lot <laughs> of, of stuff, baggage to deal with. There, there have, has been so much crazy, unbiblical, harmful 
doctrines and practices in the name of the Holy Spirit said. From the beginning of Pentecostalism, a little bit over a hundred years ago, which one of the main foundational doctrines was that term, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, is a second blessing. There are people who come to faith in Christ and they're born again and some never get a second blessing called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But those who have it, there's an evidence of it. And the, the, the evidence of it is speaking in other tongues. I'm going to see later, that's just not true. On to the many offshoots of the charismatic movement in the 1960s and the 1970s to the crazy, manipulative, emotional-based religions proclaimed for years on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, all claiming with crazy words coming out of people's mouths and actions, it's the Holy Spirit. To the Toronto Blessing in the mid-1990s. Some might not know what I'm talking about. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You experience it. Toronto, that's a place. That, that was a particular place where God the Holy Spirit was really working. So much so that many people would get on airplanes to fly there to be where God was under those particular men. And, and then it moves to, I guess, Pensacola, Florida, and whoever, I don't know, I've just kind of stopped paying attention. All in the name of God the Holy Spirit moving in the world and in the church. And so I say, no wonder, <laughs> no wonder the doctrine of cessationism is attractive. It's just easier not to mess with that. Much less messy. Now, the other confusion comes from those who are brought up in churches and they're taught, and it's how it usually works, whether you're in a family or in a church, you get born again and there's your leaders. And you, just by definition, we start to, to buy that. And then part of growing is we start to, ooh, do I challenge it? I could tell you stuff I totally have rejected that I bought into for eight or nine years because I happen to be in a particular church. But that's part of growing. And so, but for, for those brothers and sisters who, nope, the, the, the gifts have ceased because the perfect has come. That is, the canon of Scripture is completed by the end of the first century. And Paul says, when that has come, then the gifts will cease. Okay, so, but if I'm talking to one of those brothers or sisters and, I, and they would ask me about my opinion on the issue, I'd say, well, look, I want to first and foremost be biblical. I want to be a good exegete of Scripture. I care about the original languages and I care about context. And having done that, and, and, and I know other people who want to do the same thing and I do, and they disagree with me, but I just can't see a biblical reason to say that these gifts somehow we should not expect. And when I would say something like that, this is what I mean by about confusion about stuff. I think bells might go off in that mind. Oh man, it's just a Benny Hinn crazy type or televangelist. or They got all kinds of weird ideas that maybe someone told them and, and if, the, if they would tell me what they're thinking, I would probably look at them and say, 
no, 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 no. You're not disagreeing with me. We're in full agreement. What you think I meant by continuation of, spirit, of, the, of the gifts of the Spirit is nothing about what's in your mind, probably. Okay, so, one more part to this is that here at Sovereign Grace, we have numbers of us that have come from charismatic slash Pentecostal backgrounds. And some of those backgrounds, you have come to realize by good expository preaching, they, that means the doctrines, the thinking about the Holy Spirit, the practices were so far removed from the written Word of God. And you have been experiencing God's work deeply in your heart through sentences in the Bible. Not, what does the Holy Spirit teach me? And now, you're tempted though to just throw the baby out with the bath. Even when you hear the word the Holy Spirit or the moving of the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit or experiencing the Spirit or being carried up into the Spirit. If the text in the Scriptures speak that way, we need to be careful not to avoid those texts in the Scripture. Especially if we want to be Bible people. Expository people. So, those are the five reasons for this series. And during this series, we will be looking at topics like the Holy Spirit as the author of Scripture. The Holy Spirit and His work in new birth. The Holy Spirit's activity in the Old Testament before the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. What happened before then? The meaning of the term, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The repeated infillings of the Holy Spirit. We will look at the pros and the cons of the charismatic movement. We will look at the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We will look at the sanctification in the believer's life by the Holy Spirit. We will look at the role of the Holy Spirit in biblical interpretation. So there's a taste of where we're, we're going. All right. Well, that's the introduction to the series. This week, week one is titled, Who is? The Holy Spirit. It'd be kind of silly to start talking about His works. We haven't discussed who, who we're talking about. So what I want you to do is I begin here. Just, just let your Bible sit in your lap if you want. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to read words from Jesus from John chapter 14 through 16. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him 
or knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you, and He will be in you. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I, Jesus, will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I, Jesus, the Son, go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, my apostles, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not seek His own authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Who is this Holy Spirit that Jesus speaks of? Who are we talking about over the next three months? That is our question this morning. So, I'm going to start it this way. And say that for the last 2,000 years, the church has said, when we refer... To the Holy Spirit, we mean the third person of the Holy Trinity. Trinity is not a Bible word. It's a really good word to capture what we read in the Holy Scripture concerning the way God has revealed Himself to us. Trinity. Try unity. Try three. Unity one. Three in one. One. From the beginning of Genesis, what the Hebrew Scripture, one of the preeminent things the Hebrew Scripture brought to this world was the truth and the understanding against paganism and its many gods that there is only one God called monotheism. 
one of the central texts in Moses, in the Torah, the law. And to today, for Jews, the central text is, and it ought to be for us, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, called the Shema, means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. When the New Testament speaks of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it is not speaking of three gods. There is only one eternal God. But the Bible clearly attributes godness, that nature of God or deity, to not only the Father, but to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. There are three distinct persons who are the one God. Not three parts like a pie, got one whole pie, and you cut into three equal parts. Uh, let's take out a part. Okay, we take the sun and put him over on the table here, and then you've got two other parts in the pie tray over there. Well, there's God, and there's God. That's not the Trinity. This is not what we're talking about. That would be three gods. The church from the first century on A.D. 65, A.D. 95, A.D. 120, A.D. the year 258. The church as a whole, as it's growing and spreading, believed in the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just how they understood it. Now, what happens a few hundred years in, after the New Testament, in the early 300s, when a Christian teacher starts to say and teach explicitly Jesus is created before all worlds far and above Adam and Eve and all humanity oh yes and wait wait did you hear it he was created and what happens is others hear that and other teachers start teaching that and the church starts to go huh wait a minute we never believed that. And now you've got a problem. You've got a crisis. That's how church history works. And so there was this crisis in the early 300s. This has got to be dealt with, finally. And this is how we come out with formulas concerning major doctrines of the Bible because we're forced to by the errors that come up. And so, the leaders of the church had to get together and meet at a particular place in a city called Nicaea at the very first ecumenical council of the church in the year 325. Because this one major teacher in the people he's influenced, his name was Arius, and he's teaching that Jesus, in his person, Yes, He existed before He became human, but nevertheless, He is not co-equal with God the Father or co-eternal. He had a beginning. And so they 
go to Scripture, and they go to Scripture, and then they now, together as the universal church, condemn that teaching of Arius called Arianism. It's still with us today. They knock on your door called Jehovah Witnesses. But that fight was really went on for the next 50 years until the year 381 when it was finally condemned in our Constantinople Nicene Creed. And the doctrine, the formula of how shall we stay within biblical bounds referring to God the Trinity was laid out. And so by Trinity, what we mean is one God, monotheism, who by definition, without beginning, has always existed in three distinct persons. When we say three in one, I, I, I just know that for many people, because they haven't thought deeply about it, on the surface it sounds like a contradiction. God would never ask you to believe in a contradiction. God doesn't believe in contradictions. God will never and cannot believe that two plus two is five. Logic exists because God exists. You know the rule in logic called the rule of non-contradiction? A cannot be A and not A at the same time and in the same relationship. That, that, that would be a contradiction. See, for me to say, I am a father and I'm a son, is not a contradiction. If I mean, I am a father in one relationship to my children, and I am a son in another relationship to my mother. But if I were to say, I am a father and a son in one relationship, I am my mother's father and my mother's son. It cannot be. It just cannot be. It is a contradiction. So when we say Trinity or triunity, three in one, there's only one God, three distinct persons, there is no contradiction. We are saying God is one in one sense and He is three in a different since God is one in essence, Greek word usia, being. He's one in his being, or say it this way, his nature, his godness. Now, don't push this illustration too far, but I just want to get that over. We all share the same nature in here. Humanity. But we are not the same persons. Okay. Okay. There, there's this, our nature, our being is human. Okay. There, there's only one Godness. Being. God is only one. And He is three, not in nature, not, not in essence, not in being, but three in persons. Now, logically, there is no contradiction. 
And we say that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Well, what do we mean? We mean the Father is first. The Son is second. And the Holy Spirit is third in order of being. In the internal dynamics of that which never began, we do not mean the Father is first and then the Son came about. Or the second person came into existence. And then the third person came into existence. That is not biblical. It's not what we mean. We mean in the internal order and dynamic of who God is. The order of existence and in being eternally. That's what we mean by first, second, third person. All three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal. Eternal meaning without beginning. And so, to get at the person of the Holy Spirit, we must first consider the first two persons of the one Godhead. So, Get your thinking caps on, okay? It might hurt a little bit. Let me read a, a portion of, of the Constantinople Nicene Creed of 381, which, which begins, We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Okay, And then it comes into, And we believe in, quote, One Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not, as Arius would say, not made, being of one substance, Stuff with the Father. Okay. In other words, there never was a time when the Son was not. That's what we're saying. Without beginning, that is eternally, there has always been the dynamic of the Father beginning the Son. Let's ponder that for a few minutes. God, and you do this too, you're going to do what I'm going to say here. And the reason you do it, and the reason your dog doesn't, is because you're made in the image of God. And your dog isn't. God has been eternally, remember, that meaning without beginning, eternally thinking. He has always had an image of Himself. We all do that. You are all conscious of yourself. 
When we say, I, I went to the store. I feel this way. I do that. What, what do we mean by I? We mean that I am conscious, very self-conscious of my existence. I'm aware of my I-ness. God has been eternally conscious of Himself. Now, there's a big difference between the Creator and the creature. We are conscious of ourselves, and I've just said God by definition is conscious of Himself, and now, and we're the same in that way. Here's the difference. When God in His omniscience is conscious of His being in Himself, He knows nothing approximately. He knows nothing 99.999% of its reality. He is infinite and He is unbounded. His sight, vision, thoughts, image of Himself is no different than the absolute essence of who He is in thinking of it. I know that hurts. He's omniscient. Omni-knowing. Perfectly. God, by definition, has known Himself so perfectly and thoroughly and undistortedly and has never been anything other than at least knowing Himself. That way. We creatures only finitely, limitedly, by definition, because we're finite beings, have images of ourselves and self-consciousness of ourselves. But it's so finite that what we're talking about at this moment is really hard and indeed impossible to thoroughly grasp. But you do it. I know most of you are like me. You talk to yourself in the shower when no one else is around. You get embarrassed when they come around. You're, you're very conscious, almost, almost as an object to you, the subject. I mean, if you, you don't, I do. You follow me around on a golf course, 130 yards out, seven iron. This is it, and it shanks. And boy, do I have a conversation out loud. Joe, you idiot! That's who we are. It's how we're made. I did it playing surge yesterday in racquetball, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. I won the first one. Different than us. God is not finite. He is infinite. And He has, by definition, for all eternity, with all of His power and all His omniscience, been self-conscious as a subject. Aware of Himself as His own object. So here's the question. 
What is the difference between God Himself and the eternal, perfect idea or image that He has always had of Himself? The answer is, there is no difference. That image has always stood forth, personified as the perfect, eternal beginning and reduplication of God Himself. Anyway, He's infinite. We're not talking about analogies that we know of. Here's the original. And then let's put it in the photocopy machine. And out comes. And you keep doing it long enough, you can see the distortions. You, you know it's not quite like the original. Because we're in a finite existence and world. It's not who we're talking about. We're talking about the infinite, unbounded, omniscient, and omnipotent one. God in His omniscience, His knowledge, there's nothing He does not know. You do know that God has never learned. He doesn't wake up the next day and i got new information about reality, even if it's future. He doesn't learn. It's something that's unfathomable to us, by definition, because we're creatures. But God, in that omniscience, so perfectly knows Himself, that He does know Himself as a subject and the knowledge He has of Himself is so infinite and perfect that it stands forth within the Godhead, personified as His own object. I think that's what Hebrews 1 means in verse 3 when the writer tells us about the person of the Godhead, the second person, who became a human being in Jesus Christ, full humanity, full deity, when he talks about his person, when he says this, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Or the prologue to the Gospel of John In the beginning was the Word, or the Logos, the understanding. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with, or literally, up against God. And that Logos was God. Okay, you ready to move on next step? Give you a couple minutes to think, play the keyboard. Okay, now here's the next question. What is that dynamic relationship between the subject, knowing, contemplating the object, and vice versa? Versa within the God. What is that dynamic between the first and the second persons of the Holy Trinity? Now think with me just a little bit. 
God not only is omniscient, has all unbounded, perfect, never limited, never distorted knowledge of himself, but he is also omnipotent. He has all power. Which means this. God has the ability to do or be or act in any way that He so wills. Okay, you follow me so far? Okay, now the will. What is the will? The will is true for God and it's true for you, I would contend. And uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote the final piece, I think, on that. We'll, we'll see how history works itself out. But the will is the mind. Choosing. Choosing the thoughts, the things, the understanding, the knowledge that is before the mind. That's how your will works. The will is the mind choosing. Choosing, choosing what? Choosing whatever at any given moment it declares or thinks to be the most desirable. That's why we move and act and do. And so God has been eternally, without beginning, willing. Now I'm going to make a statement and we'll try to unfold it. Willing what? Willing to be infinitely happy. Complete. I'm just, I'm just trying to do any word I can to say the same thing. Complete, contented, to the full, where he could not look up and say, well, I could be happier. He, by definition, has been willing to be infinitely and gloriously and eternally and omnipotently and omnisciently happy. I'm going to try to unfold what I'm going to say. He's been doing that. How? By the Father delighting, loving, being satisfied with the Son. A self-conscious object that has stood forth from Him without beginning as its own object in the Son to the Father. Okay. I've just made a statement out of the blue. God has been infinitely and gloriously, perfectly happy, fulfilled, contented, joyful. How do you put it? Where do you get that? Because it can't be any other way. Nothing else makes sense. If you just want to go philosophically for a minute. Think about it. If God is omnipotent, all-powerful, in other words, He has the ability to act, to do, to be any way that He so chooses. And not only is He omnipotent to be able to do that, but He's omniscient. He doesn't lack any information or knowledge of what it would take to be infinitely and perfectly and 
gloriously have. So, so that we know that, and that is the definition. I mean, you've got to have those attributes in God or you're outside the bounds of the Bible, okay? He's okay. So omnipotent and omniscient. To, to think that now he, with, he, he is not limited in understanding. He knows exactly what to be and how to be. And he has all the power to do it. And that he would not choose to be infinitely happy. I just think is an absurd statement. It doesn't make any sense. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say, okay, there's God before creation and everything, and who is God in His eternal workings? Okay, before God, there are three pills. Pill number one, God eternally, take that, okay? Pill number one, you will be infinitely, eternally, gloriously fulfilled, contented, happy. Pill number two, take that one, and which one are you going to God, you will be eternally gloomy, miserable, depressed. Pill number three, you'll be a little of both, like a, a manic depressive and up and down. Okay. Which pill would you choose? They're up to you. God, which pill would you choose? Obviously, pill number one. Now, God never chooses in the sense of, I wasn't that the day before. This is just a kind of reach for an illustration to say, God has always been the eternal energy of partaking of pill number one, infinitely and gloriously happy. But now, what is that pill? What do we mean then? What is that pill? Well, Think about this. Just, just, just for argument's sake, buy what I just said. Just, just so you can follow me. Okay, okay, I'll buy that for argument's sake. That God has always been nothing short of infinitely and perfectly happy. Okay, what is it about God's activity within the Godhead that must be true for Him to be eternally and infinitely happy? Okay, is it possible? In, in existence, that there would be an object, there, there would be a something that is out there objectively infinitely satisfying. Unboundedly beautiful so that when one looks at it and receives and partakes of it, it makes that person, the subject, viewing the beauty of the object, makes them as infinitely happy. If there were something out there that were like that, and then there was a being who chose eh, to kind of ignore that reality, could that being be truly is happy, is satisfied by ignoring that which is all satisfying as he could possibly be? No. The eternal pill of God is that he has been without beginning, with all of his might, all of his understanding, loving indeed, worshiping the all-satisfying object that is in existence 
which happens to be Himself. God, by His nature, cannot become more happy, fulfilled, thrilled. Oh, He can double it. He can take that happiness and pour it out on humanity and save them through Jesus Christ and extend that happiness outward through creation. But He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything outside of Himself because the eternal image that He has of Himself standing forth in the second person of the Trinity has always been absolutely joy fulfilling to the Father. And looking back into the face of the Father, the eternal Logos, the second person, has always absolutely been contented, filled in His love and worship and delight of the Father. Okay? Now, here comes the punchline. Because this is a series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. That eternal activity between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father, the subject and the object, the object and and the subject, that relationship that community, that dynamic of worship, meaning I look to you to fill me, that satisfactory, unbounded joy is exactly that. Infinite. Unbounded. Non-finite. So much so that that very community of the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father has never not been anything but standing forth personified as the third person of the Holy Trinity. The one eternal God has not Failed to delight in himself omnipotently, fully. We say that a little bit differently. We can be assured God is not an idolater. He has not failed to worship himself appropriately. He is not needed to go outside of himself to partake, indeed, worship something he thinks would give him more happiness. The proof is that God is not a di-unity. He is not two in one. The proof is he is three in one. The proof is that he has loved himself so infinitely and so perfectly that that love for himself is himself a person personified. The Holy Spirit has eternally been proceeding from the Father and the Son. Okay. 
Now, great minds, all I said, what I've just been trying to say, great minds throughout church history have been contemplating Trinity this way, such as St. Augustine back in the late 300s, early 400s, such as Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s. And just last century, C.S. Lewis. What I've just said over the last, I don't know, 30 minutes, is trying to, I'm just going to quote C.S. Lewis for a moment and, and listen to him say it. I'm just trying to say what, he, what he's saying here and get a grasp of, of this, okay? Lewis says, quote, The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. I know that's almost inconceivable, but look at it this way. You know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or a club or a trade union or Notre Dame football, people talk about the spirit of the family or the club or the trade union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members when they're together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving which they would not have if they were apart. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, it isn't a real person. It is only rather like a person. But that's just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and the Son is a real person. Is in fact the third of the three persons who are God. That's our question, which I hope reverberates for the next three months. Who is the Holy Spirit? I've been trying to answer the question. What we have seen, heard here, is the being of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. The essence, the nature of God. Before Genesis 1.1. Before He ever created. Okay, Now for a moment. God then does create. And He relates as Creator to the creature. And we know how He does it through this book. The Hebrew Scripture. The Greek New Testament. And as we look in the Bible and see the differing ways God relates, we see that well, the Father relates, in a way. The Son relates to the creation, in a way. And the Holy Spirit does. And we see that they have differing roles in relating. And theologians, for centuries, when referring to seeing the differing roles, the persons of the God have, have it, call that the economy of God. Because when we read Scripture, it's, it just becomes clear that, oh, that's the activity or the role of the Father. Oh, 
that only belongs to the Father. And this is the activity of the Son. For instance, the Son's the only one of the three persons in the Godhead that became a human being and redeemed humanity. It was only the Son. And then we see there are roles that belong to the Holy Spirit. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. Only the Son. The Father sends, there's an activity, there's a role. He sends the Son. The Son accomplishes redemption. And the Holy Spirit's role is to take the work of Christ and to apply it to sinners and to create the church. So, over the next few months, we will be discussing the roles of God, the Holy Spirit, in this world and in the church during this time. And don't forget, week in and week out, as we consider different topics, different activity of the Holy Spirit in His work, that we are not talking about some impersonal force or some radiance that flows out of God like a rays of the sun beat on our body at the beach, you feel its heat. But really the rays itself coming from the sun is not technically the sun up there. That's not what we mean when we refer to the Holy Spirit. What we mean is God. The only true God. The only one God. In the person of the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you just, just a couple of texts. When we flip over to the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 3 to 4, and you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, but then we read this and start with verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. Or Acts 28, verse 25. And here, what Paul's going to do is he's going to quote Isaiah 6. You read Isaiah 6, it's clear. Yahweh! That's who, how God has revealed Himself in the books of the law and throughout the Old Testament. Personal name of God. Yahweh said! And Paul knows that. But Paul says, when he's going to quote Yahweh, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, He's God. Or Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple? Okay, somehow God lives in you, church. And that God's Spirit dwells in you. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in the church, in a believer, thus by definition, God Himself dwells in you. Or Psalm 139, verses 7 to 8, 
can hear that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. That is an attribute that belongs only to God. Where shall I go from your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. One more. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 to 11. The Holy Spirit has the attribute of omniscience, which is an attribute that only God has. These things, Corinthian church, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Because the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the person, except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So, as we contemplate the Holy Spirit, in His works. Do not forget we're talking about the one God. But, as this one God relates to us creatures, and we're not talking about the Son of God, who is God, we're particularly talking about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is the personification of worshiping God, who is the personification of being in His nature, the essence of seeing and viewing God perfectly and truly, and the love and joy that is in God is Himself, His person. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 5 5. Believer, and there may be tons of pain down here as you carry about in your body radical imperfection and sin, even while being saved. Hope does not put us to shame or disappoint. The hope in the gospel is the context here. But here's his reason. Because God's love. Yeah, this is what I think Paul means here in this objective genitive. Because the love God has for God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Think about it. The Bible's clear. We have all come into existence and been born into sin. We are by nature sinners. We are by nature in our hearts darkened. We do not see the object of God. It's beautiful for what He is. 
Jesus comes and He dies on the cross and He rises from the dead. And that message of God's saving work goes out called the Gospel. And it tells you of this glorious and wonderful work. And then, before the preacher leaves, says, you now must repent. You must turn away from loving your idolatry. Turn away from putting other things in front of God. You must see God for who He is as the all-satisfying joy of your heart. And then we go away hopeless because we can't do it. We are darkened and the God of this world has blinded the eyes of us unbelievers. And so we can't come to meet that demand in order to be saved. It's like saying, you could be saved, Joe, if you would just delight in eating dirt. God's not the dirt. But what sin has done has caused us fallen human beings to think God is dirt. And so no one will be saved. Unless somehow that activity of the Father delighting, loving, eating, partaking of Him divine, holy, satisfying perfections in the Son. And the Son, likewise worshiping and delighting and being absolutely, eternally, and infinitely filled, looking into the face of the Father. If that were somehow bottled up, personified, and that person were to come into a darkened heart, doomed to eternal judgment and inseminate himself in that dark spirit. If that would happen, then indeed that person would be born again. And they would not say dirt. They would say the most delicious food ever. They will have stumbled over the treasure in a field and they would have gone home, buried it, and sold all they had to get it if God, the third person of the Trinity, came into their heart. It is because of this third person of the Trinity. Your story may be something like it. We all have different stories. But at age 19, pothead, drunk, Reading the Bible. No wonder one day God said, I can't believe it. This is really true. It was only because He, the Holy Spirit, blew. And when He came into me, I in part just taste of who He is, became my taste in part. Or as the Apostle Paul 
says. We've been given the Holy Spirit. It's a down payment. You ain't seen nothing yet. Come on up. Father, may none of us in here ever see theology as an end in itself. In my whole purpose, in my hope, in my plea to you is that in the contemplation of your being, the eternal Holy Trinity and the work of the Spirit and throughout these months would be for the purpose of worship. Would you cause us through this sermon and the ongoing contemplations of what we've heard to actively have our wills moved toward you. Desperate, may we feel the desperateness of being engulfed and carried and filled by you. Holy Spirit, to the glory of Jesus, as we're being purified by your word and by your spirit, to the glory of your eternal purposes in sending your Son.